We're in Nehemiah 1. Albert started that last week. It's verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Good morning. Last week, I shared what I believe to be a defining moment for our church. So, so much is changing here, and it changes for the better, and, and that's why we're studying the book of Nehemiah here. There were three exhortations given for all of us to participate in as we experience some of these growing pains, and I'll just review them quickly. One of them was to continue to commit to praying for us, for our community, for our church, to pray for what's happening here, to pray for one another. Another one is to study Nehemiah on your own, to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you what it is that you need to do to kind of lead you into action as you're prayerfully considering what you're wanting to do here. And the third one is to fellowship with one another sacrificially, to invest into one another so that we get to know each other better, extend care for one another more, love one another, and develop that intimate relationship with one another. Before I get any further with this study, let me open this up in prayer. God, we thank you so much for how you've blessed us. You've blessed us with all these joyful voices of children that we desire so much, Lord, to raise in your ways, to show them who you are, to show them your love. And I ask, God, that you would help us to protect them from ourselves, from how churches have negatively influenced us, and I pray that we're not guilty of that same path that we lead them into a way where they thrive with you, where they desire to be with you, where they want to please you and glorify your name. God, we need you. We need you in this community, a community that we've been serving for well over a decade, and we've seen many changes in our neighborhood, and we're anticipating something even greater, knowing that you are a God that blesses in gracious and extraordinary ways. So would you use us, your humble servants, who are not capable of all that much, but in you we're capable of so much. In Jesus' name, amen. At the beginning of last week's study, shared about several different groups in our church, and of course not an all-inclusive list, but I think the groups that I shared about include a lot of the people in this church to some extent, and so I brought up this group of challengers and chargers and charters, checkers and chillers, and uh, we won't go into the definitions of every single one of those categories because you can just pull that up in iTunes from last week. And I simply bring this up, I bring these groups up to just share how different we all are, how diverse we are. We have so many different personalities here and we have so many different ways that we react and we respond to various things that come our way. We also have this diversity of callings and interests within each one of us where people feel led to serve. And through all of that diversity, God designed it such that we have a need for one another. That we are united in our diversity, that our diverse community can celebrate our differences because we are united under Christ. And one of the things Nehemiah does is he brings a diverse group of people to build a long-lasting, healthy community that celebrates God, celebrates our relationship with one another. And in this book, we're given these building blocks of what a healthy community is to look like. We'll see who God uses to rebuild communities because God uses a variety of people. 
There's no cookie cutter model of people that God uses. But even with every type of person, there are those who choose to do something and there are those who choose not to do anything. So we take a challenger, for example. There are those who like to challenge things, and there are a fair amount of you out here. I'm one of them. I'm not picking on you. I'm one of them, right? But we like to challenge things. We like to make things better. We want to improve upon things, and some do something about it. And then there are those who challenge things because that's just who they are, and your feedback is sometimes helpful, and it would even be more helpful if you contributed to do something about it. Or a charter, for example. A charter is someone who likes to organize things and and administer. So they like charts, you know, flow charts, spreadsheets. They like all this kind of stuff. We need more than just your verbal feedback that we need to get more organized. I know we need to get more organized. I know this. Help. Help, please. So do something about it. Don't just say, you know, this needs to be more organized. Yes. Do it. Like, come on, do it then. Especially if you have the skill to help, help. Do something. And for Nehemiah to rebuild this wall in Jerusalem, he needed to unite a very diverse group of people, including challengers and charters. And so he needed to bring these people together who were very different. Now, what would bring them together? Let's look back to verses 2 and 3. And there we read of a conversation Nehemiah had with his brother Hanani. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. I wonder if this took Nehemiah by surprise. I wonder if he thought things would be just different than the news that he received from his brother Hanani, because this news is pretty bad. There's great trouble and shame for those who survive the exile. And to hear that the wall is still broken down and the gates are destroyed by fire, Nehemiah was probably hoping to hear something good from his brother's mouth, that the people's spirits were uplifted because things were changing for the good, but it's not the case And so we come to verse 4 where we see how Nehemiah reacts and how he responds to this update from his brother. Now some of you might be wondering, why is he just doing one verse? And this is really purposeful on my part. I chose one verse for this reason. Because before we do anything, before we take action on anything of the needs that we see around here, we need to pause. We need to pause at this one verse because what's happening here is crucial before we get too far onto this next journey that we're on. So we need to press the pause button. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Let's pause and let's notice. Nehemiah sat down, he wept and mourned. So we see his compassion, we see his heart. And continued fasting and praying. And also notice, he didn't do this for like 10 minutes or one meal. For days. And here's where I'd like to bring up Nehemiah's reaction and his response. 
Now, the definitions of the two words might be similar, but the differences in how we practice these behaviors is huge. When we react, it's often done in a posture of defense, right? A defensive posture. And when we respond, it tends to be something that's more mindful and reasonable, thoughtful. And that's the kind of a posture that response has. Reactions, though, they're not always bad, right? They have their place. Uh, I was driving our former youth pastor home, driving down Fifth Avenue, and there's no stop sign for me. But then right in front of Laney College, this car just kind of streaks on by, and so no stop sign there. I had to respond and just slam on the brake, right? It's quick. It's defensive. You don't have time to think and go through a process of, hmm, shall I? You just do it, right? You react. You just do it. And so there are appropriate times for reaction. And then there are other times where there needs to be a more mindful, reasonable, thoughtful action in in terms of how we respond to a situation so that we can have outcomes that will be better than if we reacted to it. Now, how do we know the difference? Well, you can see a reaction, right? You can see it. Reactions tend to emote a response. So you feel it. So those goosebumps you get, that stutter in your voice, that stomach turning, your heart dropping, the blood rushing to your head, the heart racing, the palms sweating, all those types of things, you feel it. Others can see it in you. They can see that in you. Again, not always bad because there are times that it is necessary and sometimes it shows what we're passionate about. You know, when you get that forehead vein, some people have that forehead vein, it's really intense and scary. What happens is if we hang out there too long, we tend to lose control of it if it keeps going, right? Because it's emotional. And beyond that initial burst that may save your life or show your passion or something, it loses being productive pretty fast. Now, how about response? This is slower. It's less emotional. And there's room for logic and reasoning to take place, which allows for this longer-lasting and productive change to take place because there's time and space to think about how to do things in a civil way if it's an argument. And it's a way to learn, to grow, and to listen. Something about reactions and responses, we're responsible for both. Both of those actions we take responsibility for, and they both reveal quite a bit of who we are. And in Nehemiah's reactions and in his responses, we see the type of person Nehemiah was. Another thing about reactions and responses is that they affect the people around us. The people around you are affected by your reaction and your responses. My family was vacationing in Monterey this past Christmas. We were given tickets to the Monterey Bay Aquarium, and we were also given some complimentary hotel nights at a hotel. And so one day, it was late morning, and we're all in the hotel room, and we're on the eighth floor, and the fire alarm goes off. It's not a drill. It's a real one. I've never been a part of this. It was kind of exciting. So, but my oldest daughter, she panicked, and I could see in her face it got white, And she was like shaking and she was like, what's happening? What are we going to do? And all this kind of stuff. And I could see that and she's about to cry, which then started this chain reaction to my second daughter and to my third daughter. It was kind of like the vomit thing, like you just go and then the other ones go. Now, imagine if my wife and I panicked along with them. It would have just been a mess. It would have been like hysteria. But no. 
Katie and I, we grabbed what was important, and then we grabbed the kids. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> and we proceeded down the stairs, eight flights. And so we took charge as leaders of our household, and we could see the calm being restored in our daughters because they saw that we didn't panic, and they were seeing the fire crews running into the building with the fire trucks just outside with their lights, and then more fire trucks coming with the sirens and all that kind of stuff. But they didn't panic because they saw their mom carrying their father down the stairs. And <laughs> But this is just true of all of life's circumstances, isn't it? where the community moves with its leaders. That's how it moves. And you can look at countries and businesses and sports teams, churches, how communities are influenced by their respective leaders' reactions and responses to the various circumstances that come their way. You take a look at Numbers chapter 13, starting in verse 1. Let me read the first three verses first. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, everyone a chief among them. So Moses sent from the wilderness of Paran, according to the command of the Lord, all of them men who were heads of the people of Israel. Leaders. So God had already told them he was giving this land to his people. It's not like, um, I've never seen it before. Can you guys check it out for me? It's not like that, right? So it's not a question of if they're going to get the land. It's when. And God was going to take care of it, but God wanted them to check it out. And they're given this spy mission from verses 4 to 16. And so let's pick up in verse 17. Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, Go into the Negev and go up into the hill country and see what the land is and whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, and whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad and whether the cities that they dwell in are camps or strongholds and whether the land is rich or poor and whether there are trees in it or not. Be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. Verses 21 through 25 tell us where they went. And what they did while they were on the spying mission. So let's skip down to verse 26. And they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. So everyone's here. right? Everyone's gathered to hear this report. Now keep in mind how we influence people through our reactions and our responses. 27. And they told him, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Grapes. Right? Good news so far. People are like, wow, that's awesome. Like, lots of grape juice. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. Not such good news anymore. And the people react to this group of leaders' response. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Someone believed, despite all the bad reports... Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. 
So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone to spy out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And so we read of how this community is influenced by its leaders. You hop over to Numbers chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. A very different kind of weeping than Nehemiah experienced. The influence of leaders to their community. People look to how we react to different situations and circumstances. And when people aren't happy with their leadership, what do they want? A change. They want a change. Verse 4. And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Pretty chaotic times in Numbers chapter 13 and 14 because some in the leadership ranks responded poorly. Now back to Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 4. How did Nehemiah handle this discouraging news? He wept also, right? As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. One really huge difference. And we'll get into that a little bit later. First, I want to look at just his initial reaction. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept. That's his initial reaction. And you see that this initial emotion, and it continues for a while. I sat down and wept and mourned for days. Nehemiah had so much compassion for his people. He cared deeply for what was happening in Jerusalem. A question for you. When's the last time you cried? Now, I'm not talking about a sappy but good movie or a moving story that you heard because Connie's story last week got me. But for something spiritual like Nehemiah's weeping and mourning, see... Nehemiah's tears and his mourning were tied to a spiritual concern for God's glory. Have you ever wept and mourned for the spiritual work of the church, for God's glory as it faces opposition in this world? Jesus wept over what was happening in the world. Paul wept over this. We've probably witnessed people weep over this. But how about you as an individual follower of Jesus? What is our reaction to a world that rejects Jesus? What is our reaction to a world that has turned their back on God? What is our reaction for our family and friends who are without Jesus? Do we weep? Do we mourn? Is there any emotion? I hear a lot of Christians talk about revival, how much we need it. I am in complete agreement with that. We need it. The thing is, is I don't think it happens without weeping and mourning. I don't think it happens. Now, this weeping and mourning is not in a way that we just kind of conjure it up and we just kind of manufacture it because, you know, we're a good actor and we can just bring that out. But in a way that it's just our honest reaction to what's happening in our world out there. That it causes this kind of reaction. And after that initial genuine reaction of weeping and mourning, then what's our response? But I'm really concerned about the reaction part because I think we're missing that piece. 
Now, after we've had a chance to think about the world being in darkness and think about what our response is to be, does our reaction then drive us to prayer? Does it lead us to cry out to God? If our reaction does not lead us into compassion over the spiritual depravity of our world, and it doesn't lead us to prayer in response, then how much of what we do is simply efforts of our flesh? So you see why we've paused at this one verse this morning. Because I'm afraid that some of us may be out of touch with reacting from the absence of God's glory. That we've become so calloused and desensitized to not noticing that God's glory isn't present in us that we don't even cry anymore about it. Look at Mark chapter 10 starting in verse 46. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up. He is calling you. How many of us are too busy rebuking people and telling them to shut up when in reality they want the presence of God? People are calling out to Jesus. They want Jesus. Are we in the way? Are we the many? Have we lost our capacity to react in compassion to people who don't have the presence of God's glory in their life? Have we lost our prayerful response to the needs of a lost world? Do we, does the church, have the spirit and the heart of someone like Nehemiah? Or are we like the guys who rebuked and told this blind guy to be quiet when all he wanted is to see Jesus and to see? Why are we here? Why are we at church? We come for various reasons, right? Some come for the worship, come to study the word, some fellowship, whatever, there's a mixture of different things. Bigger scope, why are we on this earth? Why are we on this world? And I think this is where some Christians are really confused because they think we're on this world to be a good spouse. They think we're in this world to be a good parent. All of those things are means to an end, but they are not the end. The end is the presence of Jesus. That's the end. And a lot of those things can help, and to be those things is a great thing. It is a testimony of us being Christ followers, to be a good husband, to be a good dad. Those are things. But those aren't the end. That is not the end all of my existence, to be a good dad. A non-Christian can be a good dad. A non-Christian can be a great husband. That is not why I'm here. Why are you here? To be in the presence of Jesus. That's your end. To be in his glory. What kind of ministry are we creating here? Just a bunch of good justice stuff going on? Serving the homeless, serving the refugees, serving every group that we can think of that's around our neighborhood because we love them? Yes, 
But is that just stuff for ourselves? Are we listening carefully enough to those who are crying out to Jesus to have mercy on them? Or are, are some of them we just rebuking and we're just telling them to be quiet because we just want to see these people here served, but these other ones, no. You're not in that Jericho road for us. Our reaction, our emotions reveal who we are. Compassionate, weeping, mourning, or angry, rebuke and telling people to be quiet. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. He could have reacted with some different emotions. I usually react in anger. That's my default, like kind of emotion. And nobody else can relate to this. I know this. Like you all, nobody can relate to this at all. I'm just thinking, like, if he was reacting in anger, he would have, like, rebuked them, right? Man, those dumb guys. You've been living there for how long and you can't get this wall up? I mean, come on. Get it right. Nehemiah doesn't judge. He doesn't condemn. He doesn't criticize. He wept and he mourned. And after this initial reaction, he slows down. He slowed down to figure out how to respond. Verse 4, And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Fasting. Really quick, he disciplined himself to abstain from the normal consumption of food. He stopped his normal mealtime routine for the purpose of seeking God. Fasting was a spiritual discipline that Nehemiah coupled with his prayers that lasted for days. Now, why did he fast and pray? To seek God. To seek God to communicate with God, to discern what his response was to be because God cares about what Nehemiah cared about. For people to discover the will of God because without God, what could Nehemiah possibly do on his own? Because it's not like the walls of Jerusalem were just broken down recently or that the gates were burnt down recently. They've been like that for a long time. They've been like this for a long time. And what could Nehemiah possibly do 800 miles away? And he already had a secure job and a job that he couldn't just kind of walk away from, right? He was the king's cupbearer and they didn't come up with like labor laws yet to where he's saying like, you know, I need vacation time or, you know, where are my personal days? Like he didn't have those types of things yet. And even if he did, could he take several months off to go on this journey and go away from being the cupbearer of the king? And then even if he could do that, what would he do when he got there? He's a cupbearer. He's not an architect. He's not an engineer. He's a cupbearer. What was he possibly going to do there? It's not like he had even the resources to reconstruct the wall. So Nehemiah doing anything himself was an impossibility. But with God, anything's possible. And how is this going to happen? It started with prayer. The only way for anything to happen, God needed to intervene. The only way for anything to happen today, here, for the glory of God, is for God to intervene. Are we prayerful about that? Our prayers reveal quite a bit about our heart towards God. What are we praying for? What are the things we are praying for? Is it all about just our families and our job and our finances and all that 
What do you find yourself praying about? It'd be interesting for you just to log those types of things, what you pray about. Or, how about this? Are you even praying? Take out for meals and take out bedtime. Are you praying? The most crucial things in our life, they just take place, don't they? They happen. They do. Because if they don't, you die. To stay physically alive, you eat, you hydrate, and you sleep. You rest. That's just the basics. And if you want to physically thrive, then you do things that I just mentioned really well, and then you kind of supplement them. And then you're even disciplined about how you approach things like diet, exercise, and rest. What about spiritually? Because it's much the same. To stay spiritually alive, there are things that you need to do. Love, forgive, repent. There are these things that you must do to stay spiritually alive. But in order to thrive and to do those things well, we need to supplement our spirituality and we need to be disciplined how we approach spiritual disciplines, such as fasting and prayer. You are disciplined about showing up for your paycheck, aren't you? You are. How about showing up for God? Some of us are good at putting on a spiritual show. You know, we got Christian books on our bookshelves. We have Christian music playing in our office or home or in our car. And we have Bible verses on our desk and on the fridge. And, and you play a really, really great Christian on the outside. But if you were honest, you're not all that intimate with God. You might even claim to hear from him. But you hardly invest any time into your relationship with him. So how can that ever be true? You may even serve a lot. You may even claim to know a lot of the Bible, and you can quote a lot of it. But how's your prayer life? We all kind of section out times to meet up with our spouse, whether it's a date night or reconnecting at the end of the evening or our kids. You know, like I go on four dates a month so far, right? And when my baby turns old enough to go on a date, I'll have five dates with five different women every month. And we carve out these times for our spouse and our children. You carve out time at your job to meet with people, whether you're in sales or management or whatever. You meet with people. How about meeting with God? I wonder how different our community will look if all of us really committed to praying for this community. And I don't want to set up another prayer meeting because we already have two that happen during the week. What I'd really like to see is our hearts changed where we're open to God revealing things to us that will break our hearts and we'll weep and mourn for those things. Not a fabricated compassion, not this thing that we have to just conjure up, but one that naturally pours out of our heart and out of that compassion, it drives us to spiritual disciplines like fasting and praying. Is there anyone in your life that you love that much that you weep and you mourn for them to know Jesus? Is there anyone that it leads you to pray and fast for them? Do we love any community enough that it would lead us to weep and mourn for them? I'm really challenged by this, actually, personally. I have people in my life that I weep and I mourn, I fast and I pray for. My mom, that's been for decades. But overall, I'm pretty selfish. Overall, 
I'm pretty self-absorbed because it's my mom, my family, it's my blood. And most of my prayer life as I catalog these things have to deal with me, my wife, my kids. It's all about me. I think a lot of you are the same. I don't think I'm alone in this. Where your family has become an idol in your life. Now, please don't misinterpret what I'm saying. Your ministry as a spouse and as a parent is important. But where in the Bible does it say to put them before God? Anything that is put before God is an idol. Anything. Now, we'll get into Nehemiah's prayer and actions next week because we don't have the time to get into that. But just for some background information before we go into next week, I just want to pull out something really interesting here. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1 happens in the month of Kislev. It's winter. Now, if you look at Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1, this is the month of Nisan, which is in the spring. This is a span of three to four months. From chapter 1 to chapter 2, it's about three to four months. That was the amount of time between Nehemiah's initial reaction and the time of this intense prayer for Nehemiah before he enters into an active response. Once Nehemiah springs into action to rebuild the wall, we find out in Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 15, how long did it take? 52 days. Have you guys seen the wall in Jerusalem? That's big. That's a big wall. I can't even do a fence in my yard in 52 days. I mean, this is a big wall. This is what I want to point out. Nehemiah invested three to four months of fasting and praying to God. That's about 90 to 120 days he invested into that spiritual work. You see where I'm getting at? He invested twice the amount of time in the spiritual work than he did to the actual physical work, 52 days. Does that tell us something? Does that strike anything in you? I strongly believe this church still stands and is thriving because of the prayers of those who came before us. When we first started this church over 14 years ago, we prayed. It's all that we had. We prayed. And that's one of the beautiful things of a church plant. Over 40% of the church was in my living room praying. It was packed. Praying for the church. And when we moved into this church, we prayed. But it still wasn't back in like the early days where it was like 40% people were there and it was like everyone was in it. Under this carpet are the written prayers of many of those folks over 10 years ago. Underneath this stuff. I don't remember what I wrote. I'm really interested to pull up this carpet and find out. Like, we just had it stretched, and I was really tempted to, wait, 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 let me find my prayer. Probably would have read, like, you're still there, or something like that. <laughs> but there were only a few times we've called the church to fast and pray. Don't worry, this is not one of the times. You're like, oh. <laughs> But tragically, a couple of those times were bad times. Actually, all of the times they were bad times. One of the times was when a brother was mugged and hit across the head by a two-by-four, and he was on life support. He's alive now. He's a sweet brother, but he's definitely not the same person he was prior to that accident. And so we fasted and we prayed. 
Another time was when we moved here because there was so much crime here. I mean, this was not what it is today. Go talk to just any OPD officer that worked here over 10 years ago and ask them about this neighborhood. So we fasted and we prayed when we moved in here. Six years ago when our senior pastor resigned because he disqualified himself from ministry, we called the church to fast and pray. And it's really just too bad that it's tragedy that often leads us to fasting and praying. But oftentimes that's the case because we see that here in Nehemiah also. And there's probably a link between compassion, weeping, mourning, and fasting and praying. You know, living here close to 20 years, I know we have a lot to weep and to mourn about. The thing that I'm afraid of and I wonder about is if we've become just too calloused and too desensitized to the injustice and to the inequality that we see around us every day. It just doesn't faze us anymore. And I wonder about all the plans we have to take action against those injustices and inequalities around us. I wonder if we're just kind of spinning our wheels because we're making things so much harder on ourselves because we do physically so much more than we pray. Nehemiah prayed twice as much as he did. And you see this huge work of rebuilding the wall, how fast it got accomplished. I mean, God can quick. And I don't think that the ratio is what we're striving for. Like, hmm, how many days have we prayed before we start that? No, 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 we have two more weeks. Like, it's not that. I think it speaks to the heart behind one's reaction and one's response. It speaks to our heart. It points out the difference between relying on God to do the extraordinary or relying on ourselves to do the ordinary. What everyone else does, what any other civic organization, philanthropic organization can do And they just do it like the church. Really want to see the church shine? Let God do it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the reminder of who is sovereign and who is in control. Father, I ask for forgiveness for the times that we've lost sight of this. God, I ask that you would be with our people this morning. That... Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 4 would be more than just knowledge that they can put in their mind and regurgitate at some point. That it would be more than just a conviction that they're feeling right now. But Lord, that it would bring about a change of heart. That it would soften them to have compassion for the things that you're leading us to take action in. Help us to have healthy reactions. Help us to have healthy responses to the needs of our community and the people here in Jesus' name. Amen.